I think it's really just beginning. I mean, you have 40, 50, who knows how many million people who believe now that they don't live in a democracy, they're an illegal president. Like, how's that going to work out? I don't think good. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. As former President Donald Trump trades the White House for Mar-a-Lago, his luxury club in Florida, he leaves in his wake a Republican Party in disarray. Trump is threatening to primary Republican politicians who he believes were disloyal to him. And state parties, including the Vermont Republican Party, are sharply divided between ardent supporters of Trump and elected political leaders, such as Governor Phil Scott, who openly opposed Trump's presidency. To talk about where Republicans go from here and what happened under Trump, we're joined by Stuart Stevens. For 25 years, Stevens was the lead strategist and media consultant to top Republican politicians, helping to elect presidents, senators, congressmen, and governors. He was the strategist for Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney in 2012, and he worked on George W. Bush's two presidential campaigns. Stevens, who lives in Vermont, is a senior advisor to the Lincoln Project, a group of ex-Republican operatives who oppose Trump. Stevens is the author of the best-selling book, It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. Stuart Stevens, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Uh, Thanks, David. It's great to be here, man. So when you wrote It Was All a Lie about your own experience of seeing the Republican Party be captured by Donald Trump, and then you saw the events of January 6th, what did you think when you watched that insurrection? Did did you think it would come to this? No, listen, um, you know, I finished that book, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago. Um, it's a pretty bleak portrait of the Republican Party. As it turns out, I was wildly optimistic. I was like way, way optimistic. I never would have thought, if you'd asked me, uh, you know, the day before the election in November, if Trump wins, loses by 7 million, north of 300 votes, would Republican senators and congressmen acknowledge that he won? I would have said, yeah, of course. I mean, they won't like it, but then I could, I mean, like, come on. Yeah. So I was wrong. Um, and it's, uh, listen, I think November and December are the most momentous months in America, the most dangerous months in America since 1860. And I think it's really just beginning. I mean, you have 40, 50, who knows how many million people who believe now that they live in, uh, they don't live in a democracy. They've been a legal president. So you got a heavily armed country with a history of, you know, violent revolution that these people believe they don't live in a democracy. Like, how's that gonna work out? I don't think good. Do you think the Republican Party, as it is currently constituted, is a threat to democracy? Yes. I don't see how you can argue that. When the Capitol is attacked, I mean, these are just domestic terrorists. Um, uh, And you have Josh Hawley and Cruz, those others, um, who are inciting them. Trump obviously inciting them. And very few people, Mitt Romney's one, who 
out there just telling the truth. I mean, it's really extraordinary. I mean, these are people I heard of the greatest generation, right? And all they have to do is just get like their comm shop to put out a statement of who won the presidential election. They're not being asked to like, you know, storm a beach here. And they can't even do that. So, yeah, I think I think it's a, uh, a definite. I mean, I, I don't even know how you could argue that. Um, you, you, the Republican Party as an entity was saying that the election was illegal. I mean, that's the official GOP position. I mean, that's what Ronald McDaniel would say. Right. Um, so, of course it is. So we have this schism now. Uh, you know, in the New York Times this week, uh, there's an article about Arizona. So Arizona has now flipped two senators from Republican to De Democrat. Yep. Um, it's Republican Governor Doug Ducey certified the election win for Biden, thus earning him the eternal enmity of Republicans. So the state Republican Party now is voting to censure former Senator Jeff Flake, uh, John McCain's widow, Cindy McCain, Governor Doug Ducey. Uh, and this is a party that oversaw the loss of its, you know, of the presidency and two Senate seats. And we have here in Vermont, Governor Scott making a statement this week saying that if the Republican Party and if the state Republican Party continues to be a mouthpiece for white supremacy, he's out. You know, Governor Scott is the highest ranking Republican and the only statewide Republican in the state of Vermont. Um, I think this story is being repeated all around the country, certainly Georgia. Where does the Republican Party go from here? Um, listen, I think the roadmap is California. I think it's uh, not hard to see. I think the question is, you know, it's sort of like the subprime mortgage. If you watch the big short or read the big short, it's, it's, it's easier to predict how it ends up than how long it takes. And it probably takes longer than you think. But it was not long ago, California was a beating heart of the Republican Party, the Electoral Citadel. Now it's in third place, not second, third. Um, I think that's and where the party It's worth reminding people, Ronald Reagan was the governor of California. It's where he got his start. So, yes, leading Republican figures came from California once upon a time. Yeah, I mean, it was the heart of the Republican Party. Um, it was the... The electoral uh, citadel and, and also the financial core. More money was raised there. Um, so, uh, look, I, I, I don't think you can underestimate the extraordinary nature of what happened in Georgia. So, you know, I'm from Mississippi and I've, I've elected, helped elect governors, senators in all those southern states. Um, former Senator Johnny Isaacson was a longtime client of mine. Wonderful guy here. And it, him resigning because he had Parkinson's, which led to the special which gave Kelly Loeffler. She was appointed. Um, so, you know, in the South, a lot of people don't realize this, but these runoff elections were invented to stop blacks from winning statewide office. And they've pretty much worked to perfection. Um, and and explain know, the, how that works. Why did it well, keep 
blacks from yeah. winning office. The idea being that an African-American could get maybe 38% of the vote. So take a state like Mississippi, it's 38% black. But if you, they couldn't get 50%. So you wanted a runoff because then all the white people would vote for the white guy and that person would win. And that's what's happened. If you look at Louisiana, which has a jungle primary, where everybody runs on one ballot, there's not a Republican primary and a Democratic primary. Um, you've had, uh, you have to go back and check, but at least two or three African-Americans who led into the runoff, but then they lost for governor and senator. Um, I suppose there must be a black statewide elected official in one of these states, uh, other than Tim Scott, who was appointed which I think doesn't really count. Um, there must be a state treasurer or something in one of these Southern states who's black, who's gotten elected before Warnock, but I don't know them. Um, it's what they did in Georgia was the equivalent of winning the world series by pitching four perfect games. I, I doubt we'll ever see it again in our lifetime. I mean, the, the, why do you say that? Isn't it also, uh, uh, an indication that the electorate and the electoral outcome now reflects the actual, you know, population of Georgia. Well, this, in other words, this is what it looks like when vote suppression. It's, it's just, if you look at, you know, runoffs tend, runoffs are a lot like off your elections. Uh, people who are low propensity voters tend to drop off in runoffs historically. Um, so they're tilted to those demographically who are uh, higher propensity voters, which tends to be people of higher income, tends to be older people. Um, so it, we have like a, a double whammy here um, of the difficulty of it. Um, they knocked on 2 million doors in Georgia, 2 million doors. So, you know, in the Lincoln Project, we wanted to help. and we really weren't sure what to do. So we ended up uh, devoting a lot of resources to Stacey Abrams group and to the NAACP. Um, I, I think we played this right. We didn't try to come in and say, look, you, we're gonna tell you guys what to do here or we know what to do because obviously they know more. I mean, what Stacey Abrams has done is incredible. So we had this African-American guy who uh, had been working for the Lincoln Project, who's a former Morehouse uh, student body president. I think I was gonna be president. And he ran the operation. And um, I gotta say to his credit, guy's name's uh, Nate Newhouse. I talked to, to Nate today of the election. He, he said, they're both gonna win. And I said, really? I mean, I could see Warnock winning. Yeah. You know, it was always the thing. Because no, they're gonna win. Look, it's just straight math. The number of votes that have been banked versus the turnout that they'd have to have, they just won't get there. And he was right. And it was also nice weather. It wasn't like an ice storm, you know. Um, Not Vermont in January. Yeah, but they had these ice storms down in Georgia. And had there been an ice storm, they would have won by like five points probably. But um, really remarkable. Um, I mean, think about Mitch McConnell had the worst 24 hours that a Senate majority leader's ever had in the history of America. You know, he went to bed majority leader, he woke up minority leader, and then his office was invaded. That's a bad day. And then he had a lot of 
corporate donors, uh, which is what, you know, in the Lincoln Project, we've really focused on that, mm-hmm. uh, trying to bring pressure on corporate donors. Um, because the heart of what Holly and Cruz and those others are trying to do is race. We're, over 80% of the voters they're trying to disqualify are black. So it's just, I mean, we call it the Jim Crow caucus. I mean, it used to be that they would try to stop blacks from voting, which they still do to a certain degree with voter suppression. But now that that was unsuccessful enough to, to elect Donald Trump, they're trying to take those votes away. That's so straight up what it is. We, we read that 20 of the top 30 Republican donors have now with say they will not support uh, the caucus of people, sedition caucus, Jim Crow caucus, whatever you want to call it, that voted to block the, the election. Um, what was the tipping point? I mean, these guys, these donors have been fine through the Muslim ban. They were okay. You know, they, they weren't chased off by jailing kids at the border. A lot of bad things have happened in four years. What finally I, scared I them off? I think it's a confluence of events. If you go back to the last year, this has been a year of extraordinary um, resurgence of awareness, uh, recommitment, whatever you want to call it, to civil rights. I mean, I think it's a direct continuum to Black Lives Matter. So you had these corporations uh, who most, if not all, responded to Black Lives Matter. You know, they, they, they put out statements about it. They opened new offices of diversity. They really looked at what they were doing. I mean, it was a, a, a ripple effect that went through everything from college sports to CEOs of the largest corporations in the, in the country. So you, three months ago, you're putting out new statements, statements about your new commitment to diversity. You're hiring people. You're really trying to do this. And then you have a United States senators trying to take away millions of black votes. That's like too much. You can't live in that world. It's not even the sedition thing, because none of these offices have, none of these corporations has offices like an anti-sedition office. But they do have offices about diversity and racism. So it, it, it's just too much for them. I mean, first of all, they have a lot of African-American employees. They have a lot of African-American customers. So your Citibank, um, UPS, um, they're trying to take away their, their, vote, their votes. Right. I mean, and, and, you know, Trump, as usual, when he says the stuff he shouldn't say out loud, out loud, when he goes out and names these cities that they're trying to disqualify in these areas like Wayne County and Michigan, you know, they're all black. I mean, I did a rough back of the envelope thing, and I came up to about 84% of it that vote is black. Um, so it's, I think it's just too much. And also, I think just the, the um, spectacle of, on the 6th, these domestic terrorists succeeded where the 9-11 terrorists failed. They actually hit the Capitol. And... I, you know, nothing, I mean, even the British didn't get in the Capitol. They just burnt the White House. Um, you know, we've never, we've never seen anything like it. Hmm. 
If you're just joining us, we're talking with Stuart Stevens. He's a former top Republican uh, advisor and now a senior advisor to the Lincoln Project. Uh, also, his latest book is uh, It Was All a Lie. What uh, do you think that the Republican Party will split? into two factions or that there will be a third party formed of Trumpists in one and anti-Trumpists in the other? No, I'd like to think so, but there's just not enough market for it. Um, No, I don't. I mean, I think there's people, you know, my, my view of it is there really are three parties in America. There's two parties inside the Democratic Party. There's say, you know, a, a Sanders wing and a Biden wing which is a simplistic way to look at it, but, but it has a lot more diversity of ideology in that party than there is in the Republican Party. So to me, you take most big public policy questions, they're gonna be decided by that battle inside the Democratic Party. And like in California, Republican Party in California really doesn't have much to say about any big public policy decisions now. They're just irrelevant. So take like healthcare. I mean, in 10 years, we're really going to be the only Western country that doesn't have national health insurance. It's hard to imagine. What that's going to be is going to be determinable in the Democratic Party. Republicans are just going to say no. We know that. So does the defeat of Trumpism, does it make Trumpism more dangerous? Because yes. it's, how yes. so? Um, Trumpism has become more dangerous because um, once a major party validates hate, it's very difficult to unwind. And that's what happened with Trump. It's not that we hadn't had, we've had other movements of hate. I mean, a lot of them, Father Coughlin, the Klan, um, you know, the America first anti-Semitism of, of Lindbergh. But Lindbergh wasn't president, Roosevelt was. So Trump and the Republican Party collapsed around him um, that validates it. So, you know, I think a lot of people, they look at Donald Trump and they think, okay, the guy's a little weird, probably doesn't tell the truth a lot. I don't know. But my senator, you know, I like, it's like a normal person and he's for Trump or she's for Trump and it just validates him. And they actually know Trump. I don't know Trump, so he couldn't be that bad. And that's, you know, I mean, parties have to be circuit breakers in our system. And the Republican Party never pulled the circuit breaker. So, I mean, it's, it's gotten so much worse in the last three months, so much more dangerous. Hmm. I, I want to ask you about uh, going back to your Mississippi roots and the language now of stop the steal. This idea that, you know, the primary grievance of Trump and his followers, that something was stolen from them is a direct line back to the Civil War. Um, can you explain, uh, and I don't want to put you on the spot, I know you don't speak for everyone in Mississippi, but what does that relate to in, in the history of the Deep South, this idea that something was stolen from them that has now been resurrected? Well, it's, it's a sense of um, these big, powerful forces out there that uh, are evil that we can't control. Um, which is ironic because Donald Trump is the rich Yankee that we were always warned about growing up in the South, you know, like the rich Yankee that has no manners, that has no, you know. Um, It's 
the language of this is very much the language of, of, of segregation. So when they talk about illegitimate votes, illegal votes, this is, this is exactly what was said in the 60s. I mean, that's what gets, tell me how many jelly beans are in the jar before you can vote. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's an illegitimate vote. Interpret this passage from the Constitution. Um, look, Sidney Hyde Smith, who uh, you probably don't realize, as most people in Mississippi don't realize, she is actually a senator from Mississippi. Um, uh, she was appointed and then reelected. Unfortunately, she ran against Mike Espy, who I donated to and supported and wish she'd won. Um, it would have been a fabulous senator from Mississippi. But Sidney Hyde Smith was one of the six ended up voting in the Senate not to certify. So she said something I thought was one of the most extraordinary statements. And I don't even think she realized what she said. She said, my constituents do not believe this was a legal election. So, okay, let's look at that. Mississippi's 38% black. So Biden probably got like 95, 96%, 93% of that vote. I kind of think they think it was legal. But when she says my constituents, it's like, I don't even represent these black people. Mm -hmm. She didn't even say my voters. It's like they don't exist. And that's, I I think that's how she sees it. Um, And I guess that's really my point. What was, what is being taken from people is their white privilege. It's the white supremacy. That's what's being taken. That's what Trumpism's always been about. It's not about economic grievance. I mean, if Trump, if Trump was about economic grievance, then when unemployment went from, you know, close to 10 percent to under 5 percent with Obama, they all would have loved Obama. And that didn't happen. You know, when the S&P triples under Obama, um, it's it's uh, economic anxiety is just a socially acceptable way to talk about um, your perception of your place in the world changing because uh, you're white. And that's really all it is. So we have this impeachment trial coming up. How important or not do you think convicting Trump uh, and removing him from politics would be? Well, I think it's tremendous. Look, I actually, you know, like a lot of this stuff we used to say in the Republican Party, I actually believed and I still believe. I mean, you know, the idea of like rule of law, the idea that uh, you know, uh, situational ethics are not ethical. Um I believe all that stuff. I still do. Of course you should convict Trump. I mean, if you don't get convicted for trying to overthrow the government of the United States while you're president, I mean, what else? I mean, it makes Watergate look like a parking ticket. Um, And this was an organized effort um, by, this wasn't just a bunch of people that got together. I mean, if you look at the uh, Republican Attorney General's Association, you know, a client of mine for a million years, right? Used to be like a very decent and kind of boring organization no one really knew existed. So their executive director has resigned. Um, and I would be very shocked if the FBI is not talking to them because, you know, they sent out robocalls to uh, get people to come. Um, you know, I would bet that the FBI, if you're a staffer for Holly or Cruz of these people, so it's a big moment for your boss and you didn't have any contact with these people that were coming to the Capitol. I kind of doubt that. So who do you think becomes the heir to Trumpism? 
if it's not Trump himself, if he's not running, because I frankly can't imagine they're going to muster 17 senators uh, if they could only muster no, 10 Congress people. No, so I, I, you know, I think the the tri a trial is important when a crime is committed, but uh, I'm not uh, deluded into thinking that that means he he gets convicted. So, who carries the torch from here? Well, I mean, I think one of the, I would say probably somebody who's not we're not talking about now, um, and I'm not sure who that is. But you look at you look at why is Josh Hawley doing this, right? Why is Cruz doing this? So you take Josh Hawley, right? Here's a guy went to this, you know, nice prep school, Stanford, taught at St. Paul's in London, founded in the 15th century, went to Yale Law School, wrote a very good little biography of Teddy Roosevelt when he was 28, published by Yale University Press, and he's running against the elites. It's like, really, Jack? Really? Um, it's, it's just because he realizes he has nothing in common with these voters that he sees as essential to succeed in the Republican Party, which are non-college educated white voters. So at another time, a guy like Josh Hawley would have been a responsible conservative voice. He's not a dumb guy. He's a boy. He'd be like, he'd be like a boring Eisenhower kind of guy. Um, but no, he's got to go all this way and twist himself in the knots to try to appeal. The same with Ted Cruz. I mean, you know, Ted Cruz, you know, born in Calgary, for Christ's sake. I mean, it's absurd. You know, married to a woman who's a managing director of Goldman Sachs, who, you know, was educated in Brussels. And they're running against coastal elites. I mean, really, um, you know, both Supreme Court clerks. There's not one establishment ticket they haven't punched. And I don't think those people are going to work for the Trump people. I think they see it as totally phony. I don't think Nikki Haley. I think everything like Nikki Haley, all these what these people said about Trump in 16, they actually believed. And I think Trump people know this. So um, I think it'll probably be somebody out there that we don't know. I wouldn't rule out Don Trump Jr. Um, you know, I light a candle every day hoping that Ivanka Trump will primary Marco Rubio. I will actively support Ivanka Trump. I will make ads for Ivanka Trump. Um, because it would be just so sweet to see this guy who tried to become a Trump get defeated by a real Trump. Um, well, let me ask you, uh, before we finish, where does the Lincoln Project go from here? This, uh, you know, kind of the gladiators of the anti-Trump movement uh, within the Republican Party. What's next? Look, um, you know, we said at the beginning of this, there was against Trump and Trumpism. So um, Trump is gone, maybe. But Trumpism, I, you know, as we are saying, I think is exploded i think it's it's accelerated um we're like we see ourselves in the democracy business and we're going to support whoever we think stands on the side of democracy uh, i thought what liz cheney did the other day uh should be celebrated and applauded and i used to work with liz i actually wrote a book about the bush campaign in 2000 when i worked with her closely in cheney debate prep and i predicted somewhat jokingly but not really that she might run for president She's a tremendously impressive person. Um, and she gives you a glimpse of what a real conservative might look like. There's some sort of moral center. Um, but you've got you to gotta fight these people. And uh, it, it's, I think it's just beginning. I, I think part of the problem that we have as Americans, well, it's, it's true in all these 
if you look at democracies that modern democracies that, that slide into totalitarianism, it's usually not like Chile. It's usually not someone storming the presidential palace with tanks and, you know, shooting Allende or he killing himself. Um, it's usually through the ballot, through an erosion of these things. Um, and if you look at what's happened in Poland, you look at what's happening in Hungary, um, you know, Anne Applebaum's book, Twilight of Democracy, uh, is it, just sort of a handbook for us. I mean, Anne just lays it out brilliantly. Um, you look at the battle that's in the Netherlands. Um, there, this is all tied together. All of these people are um, of a common cause in the same way fascism in the 30s was. Um, so, look, I'm, I, I'm very negative on the Republican Party. I'm very optimistic about America long term. I mean, if you, if my, my major source of optimism, if you look at Americans who are 15 years old and younger, the majority are non-white. So the odds are really, really good they're going to turn 18 and still be non-white. And that is going to, I think, be the end of the Republican Party as we know it. Um, and America has a history of being saved by immigrants. And uh, it's probably going to happen again. And if I had to bet, I think... The next decade in American politics is going to be dominated by Vice President Harris, who probably will become president. Um, and I think having an African-American woman as vice president is going to be extraordinarily impactful in ways we can't imagine now. And I think she'll probably become president. And uh, so I think, you know, odds are the, the 2032 election, you know, she would have been on the ballot. All right, well, we're going to have to leave it there. Stuart Stevens, I want to thank you for joining us again on the Vermont Conversation. All right, enjoyed it, Ben. Stuart Stevens is a former Republican operative, a senior advisor to the Lincoln Project, and author of the book, It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all shows at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.